Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Glasgow Times Sports Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q&Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. 74-year-old Douglas Wood reveals experiences of 10 triathlons and two aquathons. It took a global pandemic to finally slow Douglas Wood down, and even then, only a little. At an age when many of his friends and former colleagues have long since settled for the quiet life, the Edinburgh-born athlete remains as energetic, committed and competitive as ever. He considers 2019 to have been his best season, a year in which he celebrated his 73rd birthday. He marked it by taking part in 10 triathlons and two aquathons, the latter a triathlon without the cycling element. To the obvious question, why, comes an even simpler reply, why not? A baby boomer born in 1946, Wood has been blessed with good health, the time in retirement to devote himself to his craft and an insatiable desire to continue to push the boundaries of his limitations, always looking for even minor improvements. Now based in Stirling, the former Scottish orienteering champion has jotted down his thoughts and experiences in a new book entitled Renaissance Triathlete, Enjoying Sport as an Older Athlete Managing Mind and Body. I never thought I'd be running at 70, he writes in the paperback that has a foreword from double Olympic triathlon champion Alistair Brownlee. But I never believed that I couldn't. He is too circumspect to boast that he will still be competing in his 80s, but if body and mind are still willing, you would not bet against it. Running has always been the thing that I've done, and I still enjoy it, and activities related to do it. With running, you naturally get slower with age, but I found my swimming was actually getting better, and when you're older, that's really stimulating to find something that you're improving on. I've become more proficient as a cyclist as well, which means my triathlon performances have been fairly consistent over the past 10 years. You never know what lies ahead, but I'm keen to keep doing it for as long as I can. As long as I'm still enjoying it, I'll keep going. There is a neat paradox that it was only through retirement that Wood was able to properly get to work. An enthusiastic runner throughout his life, the removal of his daily 9-to-5 commitment in 2007 presented him with the opportunity to delve deeper into his passion. 
he enlisted the support of a physiotherapist, a podiatrist and a performance coach, scrutinised every aspect of the triathlon process, including the two transition phases, and looked to find ways of delivering better results. That devotion has allowed him to compete in more than 100 events since retirement in 17 countries across four continents, including appearances at World and European Championships. It is a hypothetical question to ask whether he could have been an elite contender if he had been armed with this knowledge as a younger man, but it is no doubt helping him as a 74-year-old. He admits, it's been a fascinating journey over the last decade or so. Being retired, having all of this to focus on, is what gets me up in the morning. I've picked up so many useful tips in recent years that would have been helpful when I was in my 30s and 40s. Back then, you only saw a physiotherapist when you needed treatment. Now I really benefit from seeing my physio, even when things are fine, just to make sure everything is functioning as it ought to. If I knew back then what I know now, my performances would probably have been a lot better. But I was busy at that time with a full-time career and only doing it in my spare time. Now I have the time to do it all properly. Vaccine permitting. Wood, who also works as a coach, will get back on his travels and racing again in 2021. That is not to say, though, that he has used the virus as an excuse to put his feet up. On the morning that we speak, for example, he is preparing for a swim in Loch Venacha. He said, I'm still ticking over. I'm running three times a week, getting my weekly swim and out on the bike. But it's the competitions that I miss. That's what brings out the best for me, and I'm eager to get back to that next year. Renaissance triathlete enjoying sport as an older athlete managing mind and body by Douglas Wood, published by Hello Creative, priced £10. Barkas Branded Awful by Former Celtic Star Former Celtic striker Frank McAvenny has branded goalkeeper Vasilis Barkas awful since he joined the club. The Greek stopper has been questioned and criticised by fans and pundits alike for some poor performances despite keeping eight clean sheets in 17 appearances. In those 17 games, however, 18 goals have been conceded by the former AEK Athens man. McAvenny tore into the goalie for his form after the £5 million signing was dropped for Scott Bain, before the latter was then left out for the deputising Connor Hazard. And the ex-attacker let rip on Barkas as well as the Hoops recruitment as a whole. He told Football Insider, My God, Barkas is awful. I feel for him though, because the boy has come in, made a mistake, 
and then realised how big a club Celtic is, he has been getting slaughtered from pillar to post. The recruitment at Celtic needs to be looked at because it has not been good enough, Barkas included. Celtic chairman throws weight behind Peter Lowell. Celtic chairman Ian Bankier has thrown his weight behind Peter Lowell amid calls from section of his support for the chief executive to leave the club. Sack the board with the demands from fans following their defeat to Ross County in the Betfred Cup and after the hoops dropped points at home to St Johnston in league action a week later. Lowell has taken the brunt of complaints and had sections of the support urging him to depart. Protests took place with banners and signs accusing Lowell and the rest of the board of falling asleep at the wheel, something the club boss addressed himself and denied categorically. Bankier, though, speaking at the club's AGM, has given his full backing to Lowell amid ongoing criticism and general unrest from the stands. He said, in terms of Peter Lowell, I have been privileged to work with a lot of very successful people throughout my whole career, and Peter Lowell stands out for me. The way he stands out is he's a natural decision maker. Now, that's important when it comes to football, because football is all about making the right decision at the right time, and in terms of time. You never have any time to make decisions. Everything is moving fast. You need to get it right, and you need to get it right now, on this day, at this time. Peter has the exceptional ability to do that. That's why he's so important to us. Everything he does, he does for Celtic, and in the best interests of Celtic. Bankier almost also provided more detailed financials from the last year and outlined that while COVID-19 had hit the club hard, the champions are still in a healthy position and they hope to maintain their strong cash flow moving forward. He continued, the result of COVID-19 has hit our accounts this year. Our income has dropped to £70 million and our profits came clattering down. But the important thing to point out is the strength of the balance sheet. We have got £144 million of assets as of June 30 and £38 million of net funds available to the business. With a strong balance sheet going into the future, which is still uncertain, at least you know you can afford certain things. That gives us optionality and a lot of comfort in terms of the outlook for the club and business at this time. None of that is an accident, which is a result of our strategy for the last 10 years, which is live within our means, buy cleverly, sell cleverly, and have flesh on our bones for events just like COVID, which might come along.
claim that Celtic board do not care about fans. The Celtic board has let the team down and failed to listen to the concerns of supporters. That's the view of the chief of the Parkhead Outfits Trust, who believes the club's hierarchy doesn't care about fans. Jeanette Finlay was speaking outside Celtic Park as hundreds of supporters gathered to show their frustrations at events on the park yesterday. The Hoops currently trail Rangers in their quest to win an historic 10th title in a row and were knocked out of the Betfred Cup by Ross County a fortnight ago. Ms Findlay said, The board, who are responsible for all of this, whose job it is to make sure we have a successful team on the park, have had nothing to say. Absolutely nothing. They have not been listening. They can see what we can see, but instead of coming forward with a contingency plan, they have said nothing. The first time they had anything to say was to criticise supporters for coming and protesting. It was the third successive Sunday where fans have come together in the East End to have their voices heard following protests after the Cup defeat and a league draw to St Johnson. But unlike previous occasions, the event had been arranged beforehand by the Celtic Trust in a bid to avoid a repeat of disappointing scenes where a minority of supporters clashed with police. We are perfectly entitled as fans to call on that board to do their job, Ms Finlay told fans, the job they are paid for. It's not our job, it's theirs, and we fund it. I'd like to remind all of the people who have had something to say about us wanting to protest. Those directors would not be sitting in their nice, heated, comfy seats had it not been for people like us in 1994. You've got nothing to apologise for and you are here to support your team. If you want change, then we, the fans body, has to take control of this club. That's the only way we can have some say and to not leave it to people who don't care about us, who don't care about the fact we have had to come out here and stand in this horrible weather because they refused to speak to us. In a statement released earlier in the week in response to the planned rally, Celtic said, following the announcement of a proposed gathering at Celtic Park this Sunday, December 13, ahead of our league game against Kilmarnock, the club fully understands the concern and frustration among supporters following recent results and performances, but clearly, we do not believe staging an event of this kind is in the best interests of supporters, the team or the club in general, particularly just prior to the match. For important clarification, in the present circumstances and given the health risk of gatherings of any kind, the club has not agreed to any gathering taking place. Celtic Football Club is not involved in the organisation of the proposed gathering. The club is also duty-bound to point out that it has received legal and safety advice, indicating that, 
if strict social distancing and applicable Scottish guidance are not implemented, any such gathering would breach current legislation, something the club would wish all supporters to be aware of. As is always the case, the club is, of course, happy to engage with supporters and supporter groups to understand and discuss concerns, and the club encourages supporters to raise their concerns with the club directly. Indeed, following a recent request, we look forward to meeting the Celtic Trust. Superintendent Steve Dolan of Greater Glasgow Division said, Officers attended a planned protest at Celtic Park on the afternoon of Sunday, December 13. Officers engaged with those who attended, gave advice, no arrests were made and the gathering dispersed. We will continue to police these types of events using the four E's approach of engaging with those taking part and explaining the restrictions in place to save lives. Our response will be measured and proportionate, but we will use enforcement where required if there is a clear breach of the legislation. Graham McGarry says, More questions than answers from Celtic AGM. As much as Peter Lowell has been desperate to see fans back inside Celtic Park since this wretched pandemic arrived on our shores, there would have been times over the past few troubled weeks where he perhaps wasn't quite so eager to face his paying customers. At no time would that sentiment have been bubbling nearer the surface than yesterday, as the Celtic chief executive and the rest of the club's board were spared what some fans perceive as the annual indignity of having to rub shoulders with Joe Public, or, in this case, the club's shareholders. Instead, Chairman Ian Bankier presided over a virtual AGM, where all the dry formalities remained, but where the unpredictability of fielding questions from the floor was supplanted by the considerably less volatile prospect of pre-recorded interviews with Celtic TV host Jerry McCulloch. As a consummate a broadcaster as McCulloch is, Jeremy Paxman, he ain't. First up though, was the annual run-through of resolutions and re-elections that were swept through with little fuss, with the only real point of interest for fans coming with the raising of Resolution 11, the follow-up to Resolution 12, which implored Celtic to refer the SFA to UEFA over the granting of a licence for Rangers to compete in Europe back in 2010. The board recommended that the resolution be rejected by shareholders, and so it was in resounding fashion, with just 2.82% in favour of the motion and 97.18% against. Remarkably, that was the closest margin of the day. Bankier explained the view of the board 
that the SFA should hold an independent review into the matter, saying, We've taken professional advice and engaged with interested shareholders. We understand our duties to shareholders. The requirement to consider the views of the shareholders has been at the foremost forefront of the mind. Peter Lowell raised this matter with the SFA in 2011 and 2012 before Resolution 12 was raised in 2013. The matter has been reviewed by the board on a regular basis. I have reviewed this matter and I'm satisfied that at no time has anyone at the club misled shareholders on this issue. The club called on the SFA to hold an independent review. The SFA declined to hold such a review. The club remains of the view that an independent review is the best way forward. In May 2020, the Scottish FA decided not to process proceedings. We all agree this situation is disappointing. Then it was on to the Q&A, which as well as being hosted by the Celtic TV host, had the feeling of a club channel production. While shareholders were invited to send in questions for their board prior to the meeting, Bankier explained that to avoid repetition, he, Lowell and manager Neil Lennon had sat down with McCullough to go through some of the more general points, while they would write to others individually to answer their queries. Of course, finding a satisfactory way to address the concerns raised by supporters in these strange times was never going to be easy, but the whole thing felt sterile and stage-managed, with hard questions reduced to softball setups. There were, however, robust defences of the board and the manager from Lowell, who steadfastly rebuked the idea that the high Hedians at the club had been sleeping at the wheel as the quest for ten in a row has lurched violently off course. They had spent thirty-five million pound on transfers, he argued, an unprecedented investment in the playing squad. That may be true, but what wasn't examined though was how wisely that money was spent. They are backing Lennon because he is a Celtic man and knows what it takes to win a title, even from such a disadvantageous position. Again, true, but what wasn't examined was how they got into a position where a manager who is going for a quadruple treble at the weekend is under such pressure from disgruntled supporters. Indeed, the trumpeting of the domestic success over the past few years is deserved, but there seemed a lack of recognition that it is what is going on in the present that is setting alarm bells ringing. There was an insistence that Celtics see themselves as a top-level European club in everything that they do. That may very well be true, but what wasn't examined were the reasons behind the failure to qualify for the Champions League group stages for three consecutive seasons 
and the subsequent financial rewards that have been missed as a result. And so it went on. For Lennon's part, he offered his own passionate defence of his Celtic credentials and also reiterated his belief that he could ultimately get Celtic back on track and reel in Rangers to claim the place in history that seemed all but fated at the beginning of the campaign. Whether the Celtic board were foolhardy to back their man remains to be seen, but what can't be doubted is the depth of feeling that Lennon has for the club. No one, he said, wants to win ten in a row more than him. Said Lennon, I have been a Celtic fan all my life, and I'll be a Celtic fan for the rest of my life. This means more to me than anything in my life, apart from my family. I've got a great CEO in Peter Lowell, who has brought mega success to the club. We want more. We're hungry. Fans will see that every now and again we're going to have a struggle. We've no doubt that we'll come out the other side stronger than ever. Actions, of course, will speak louder than words, however warm they are. It remains to be seen if history will judge the Celtic board to have been hopelessly out of touch with their own fans, blowing their chance of making history as a result, or whether they will be vindicated for having the courage of their convictions. That all now depends on whether Lennon can get these Celtic players to do their talking on the pitch. Danny Wilson to run rule over Glasgow Warriors super sub. Scotland centre Hugh Jones continues to provide a mystery at Glasgow Warriors as a player who provides a sharp cutting edge is restricted to cameos by a team in need of a cutting edge. Bring nilled by the European champions cannot be put down to the selection at outside centre, but Jones showed when he came on in Exeter a threat and intent that Glasgow had been lacking. This is the last season of Jones' current contract at Glasgow, having previously turned down Leicester to stay, but he may need to move on next summer for more regular first-team action in his favoured position of outside centre. Finding bright sparks in the Glasgow performance in Exeter was a bit of a straw-clutching activity, but the performance of Jones in the closing minutes was one as his speed off the mark and selection of angles tested the home defence. It is a common story. Away to Cardiff Blues, he came off the bench to create and then score the match-clinching try. Away to the Ospreys, he was one of the most dangerous players from fullback after scoring the opening try. Glasgow head coach Danny Wilson has been considering Jones as a back three player predominantly this season, playing more games at 15 than 13 and coming on as a replacement wing in Exeter. It has been a similar case of being a bit part player with Scotland 
after starting the first two Six Nations matches back in February. Jones had been a spectator until coming off the bench at the end of the Autumn Nations Cup campaign in Ireland, as Gloucester's defensively-minded Chris Harris seemed to nail down the outside centre selection. With Stuart Hogg and Blair Kinghorn at fullback for Scotland, a strong set of centres in Glasgow, including Sam Johnson and Nick Grigg, along with injured Kyle Stain, Jones may be caught between two stools. A player with 10 international tries in 26 appearances, who did so much to transform Scotland's try-scoring potential, has been left out as coach Gregor Townsend prefers the bludgeon of Harris to Jones's rapier. The reason most often quoted for such a decision is Jones's defence, but Glasgow struggled in the 13 channel in Exeter, where the home side did most of the damage away from their power pack. Admitted Wilson after the game. In terms of defensive misreads in the 13 channel, we stepped in a few times on poor reads and allowed them access out there a couple of times as well, so we will obviously need to look at that and patch it up. We will sit down and have a good look at the game and go from there. Obviously we have been running Hugh for quite a while in the back three, full back the majority of the time. Glenn Bryce is probably one guy who has been playing well at 15, so we felt he deserved the nod and Hugh would cover the back three off the bench and bring an impact. Obviously he has been away for quite a long time with Scotland. We need to look at where we will pick Hugh moving forward and where we will give him that opportunity, but we know he is a 13 as well. Nick Grigg has had some really good games as we know. He had some bad reads tonight, but I'm sure we'll put that right. It may be as simple that rugby has become so defence dominated that a player like Jones has become a luxury, but the evidence in a few games this season has been that ignoring his attacking threat can come at a cost as well. Nick Roger says, Westwood's return to number one provides some comfort in tumultuous 2020. The celebrated, decorated Harry Vardon was never short of a peril of wisdom. Even in our darkest hour, we must remember, never despair. The bold Harry once suggested in an observation that conjures up images of this hapless scribe nervously mulling over the prospect of endless calamities and farcical possibilities in those glowering, gloom-ridden 60 minutes before a tea time. No matter what happens, keep on hitting the ball, was another of Varden's sturdy statements of jaw-jutting fortitude which, in many ways, perfectly encapsulates the defiant ineptitude of those of us who eke out a fairly modest existence in the well-populated, 
fertile fields of engulfing futility and fatalistic tendencies. Varden, one-third of that great triumvirate of yore, a six-time Open champion, and the man whose name adorns the trophy that the winner of the European Tour's race to Dubai receives, would no doubt have found a few words to describe Lee Westwood's enduring excellence and shimmering longevity. At a sprightly 47, the Englishman is Europe's number one again, 20 years after he topped the standings for the first time in 2000, with a maiden success that ended Colin Montgomery's run of seven consecutive Order of Merit crowns. In the week when the game paid its respects to Peter Alice, himself a winner of the Varden Trophy during his playing pomp back in the swinging sixties, you could have almost imagined the late voice of golf signing off with a robust Bravo Lee as Westwood plundered the rankings title for the third time in his career. And it has been, and continues to be, an extraordinary career. In a testing tumultuous year, in which those behind the scenes at the European Tour deserve tremendous credit for salvaging a season from the ravaging impacts and logistical complexities of coronavirus, it was fitting that a trusty stalwart of the European scene earned the prize and applauded in his 567th event on the circuit. Westwood is such a part of the European tour's fabric, they'll probably bring out a commemorative tapestry to mark the occasion. That he hosted this year's British Masters at Close House the first European tour event to be staged after emerging for the coronavirus shutdown, once again underlined his admirable commitment to the tour that made him. The Ryder Cup stalwart finished second behind his young compatriot Matthew Fitzpatrick in the season-ending DP World Tour Championship on Sunday, but it was enough to see him poop Fitzpatrick to the cherished number one perch. Just to make Westwood feel that little bit older, Fitzpatrick was just one of 11 winners on the European Tour this year who were born after Westwood began his rookie campaign in 1994. Such a statistic simply emphasises Westwood's remarkable durability and unquenchable competitive truth amid the youth movement. The advancing years, of course, have never been a barrier to success in this great generation game. There may be a few niggles here, the odd herple there, and one or two eye-watering twinges good knows where, but the well-worn cranks, pulleys and pistons are still, by and large, in good working order. The lads in the physio unit have stretched me in places I didn't think I had, said Westwood, with an admission that evokes some deliciously appalling imagery. With 44 global wins, including 25 European Tour titles and two PGA Tour victories, 
as well as a glittering Ryder Cup record and career earnings that would make Rockefeller look like Albert Steptoe, Westwood's motivation is unwearing. The motivations never changed really, he said of an entranced drive and determination which, among many achievements, saw him top the world rankings in 2010 after plummeting to 288th on the global order a few years earlier. I get up each day and do the job I love. I've always wanted to be a golfer and I don't want it to end. Westwood will be 48 next April. The oldest player to win a major championship remains Julius Boros, who was 48 when he landed the United States PGA Championship back in 1968. Jack Nicklaus and old Tom Morris, meanwhile, were both 46 when they put the finishing touches to their respective major halls. The major prize, of course, is one that remains elusive for Westwood, despite experiencing more close shaves than an appointment at Sweeney Todd's Salon, with 19 top 10s, including a trio of seconds and six thirds in the marquee events down the years. Time may not be on his side, but didn't we say that about Tom Watson before he came within a par putt of winning the 2009 Open at nearly 60? Westwood bogeyed three of his last four holes that year to miss out on the playoff by a shot in another agonising chapter that has dogged his major story. The old best player to never win a major tag is one of those trite yet cumbersome crosses to bear, but Westwood's career will be defined by his sparkling accomplishments and conquests, not the ones that got away. In this predictably unpredictable pursuit, we can only wonder what those golfing gods have in store in 2021. For the time being, Westwood continues to revel in his roaring forties. Charlie Nicholas says that Celtic must ignore loyalty temptation. Celtic must ditch Captain Scott Brown for this weekend's Scottish Cup final. That's the view of ex-Celtic striker Charlie Nicholas, who reckons Neil Lennon must ignore his temptation to start the skipper out of loyalty. Brown has missed the past two games against Lille and Kilmarnock, and at 35, Nicholas believes there are now better options in the squad who can provide the energy their skipper cannot offer. Ismaila Sorrow has impressed in recent weeks, and David Turnbull has been a standout since coming into the fold, and former striker Nicholas is urging Lennon to be brave and keep his newbies in the side to face hearts this weekend, where an historic quadruple treble is up for grabs. Nicholas told the Daily Express, I accept Brown as captain, and Callum McGregor does not have his personality, but his legs aren't there anymore. 
he no longer has a big influence on the team. In the huge games over the last 18 months, Aberdeen and Hibs away, the old firm and Euro ties, it's been about his nuisance value, not what he does on the ball. His role diminished when Celtic scrapped Brendan Rodgers' style. He's a spoiler and that carries little reverence. He's still a big personality and he always gives 100%, but Celtic are not going to miss him if he doesn't play. He remains a figurehead and should lift the cup if they win. But Lenny has to go with players in form, like Turnbull, Soro, Hazard and Moy Elanusi. Everything that's been asked of them, they've done. Would it be a risk too far to play them in a cup final? Definitely not. Do I understand loyalty? Of course. I'd have liked it a bit more as a player, but it's never been the fabric of successful teams. It's the ones who perform who stay. I know hearts are in form, but I still expect Celtic to win, and Lenny should continue with his shake-up by going for guys playing without fear. Sorrow, Turnbull and Hazard have given the team energy. James Bisgrove hopes that Rangers fans' return is only weeks away. James Bisgrove hopes Rangers are now weeks rather than months away from welcoming supporters back into Ibrox as he outlined the improvements made to enhance the supporter experience on a match day. Stephen Gerrard's side have made a stunning start to the season in the Premiership and Europa League, but the light blue legions have been denied the chance to cheer on the Jairs this term. Supporters have given their financial backing to their club through season ticket sales and Rangers TV subscriptions, but no date has yet been set by the government that would allow supporters to return to Ibrooks. Bisgrove addressed shareholders at the Rangers AGM on Tuesday and the commercial and marketing director is eager to see fans back in grounds across the country when it is safe to do so. Bisgrove said, Although this season has begun so successfully, everyone at the club has a strong sense that something is missing at Ibrooks with the loyal Rangers fan base unable to attend fixtures as we sit here today. The fact that we sold out our season ticket and hospitality seats for the third consecutive year, in the knowledge that at least some games would be played behind closed door, was nothing short of remarkable, and the club continues to be humbled by this level of support. We are committed to ensuring Ibrox is ready for supporters as soon as it is deemed safe to welcome fans back to the stadium and are encouraged by recent developments in England. We continue to lobby the football authorities and the Scottish Government, whilst being respectful of the ongoing challenges of Covid. 
we remain optimistic that we are now weeks away from having supporters back at Ibrox rather than months. In the meantime, we can say with convictions that our RTV experience for season ticket holders has been elevated to a level comparable to any major broadcaster as we sought to bring our season ticket holders as close to the live matchday experience as possible. Thanks to our worldwide fan base, subscription levels are at a record high and we are committed to providing excellent content on a daily basis, alongside substantial improvements in the technology offering, with a new app being launched this December. We have worked hard to provide our best-in-the-class broadcast experience to supporters who are unable to attend Ibrox, highlighted by the pundit teams we have welcomed, such as Graham Souness, Walter Smith, Ali McCoist, Neil McCann and Alex Ray, to name a few, working alongside top broadcast industry pros like Emma Dodds and Clive Tilsley. Rangers have completed a series of upgrades on and off the park at Ibrox and Ochenhowie in recent months as the board continues to invest in the club at all levels. And Bisgrove hopes supporters will enjoy a different and enhanced experience when they do get to take their seats once again in the coming months. He said, we will also continue to make advancements to the stadium technology, which I view as important in the modernisation of our infrastructure and ensuring our digital transformation strategy is fully integrated across all supporter touch points. The new Wi-Fi technology, allowing us to enjoy a connected stadia, has been completed and is fully functioning and ready for supporters' return. The EPOS contactless payment systems have also been installed throughout Ibrox, with thanks to our partnership with Sporting Pay and the imminent new mid-tier LED advertising systems will also elevate the match day experience. We will continue our commitment to ensuring Ibrox Stadium is recognised as a leading European venue. Edmiston House will take us to a new level in terms of fan engagement. The potential it will provide for a match day fan zone, the club museum, state of the art events and concert space are all incredibly exciting assets for us to look forward to and will allow us to deliver firmly on our commitment to increasing fan experience, both on match days at Ibrox and through our digital platforms. Evans back in the saddle after Tokyo 2020 blow. Nia Evans may have spent only a matter of minutes in competitive action over the past nine months, but considering this, the return on her track time has been more than satisfactory 
and bodes well for what could easily be the biggest year of her life. Having ended last season back in February with Team Pursuit Silver at the World Championships, it was a long summer for the 30-year-old which was punctuated with the disappointment of the news that her Olympic debut was being forced to wait a year following the postponement of the Tokyo Olympics. But following a disrupted training program over the summer, Evans re-emerged firing on all cylinders. At last month's European Championships in Bulgaria, she collected gold in both the team pursuit and the individual pursuit in what was her first major individual title. Her rides were validation for what was, she admits, a relatively enjoyable few months of lockdown considering the circumstances. She spent the initial period of the pandemic in Aberdeenshire with her boyfriend and fellow rider Johnny Whale and was able to make the most of a less than ideal situation. And when the announcement of the postponement of the Olympics came through, she felt a mixture of disappointment and relief. She says, Two days before we went into lockdown, I'd crashed and broken my scapula, but because the Olympics were still going ahead at that point, I got straight back into training. Part of me was devastated about Tokyo being postponed, but another part of me was thinking, well, that's good for me. You've got to try and put a positive spin on things, and so looking at it like that, it bought me a lot more time. Evans certainly made the most of her uninterrupted block of training, as did her GB teammates in the team pursuit, which includes fellow Scot Katie Archibald, with the foursome recording the second fastest time in history on their way to winning gold at the recent European Championships. Evans knew she was in good shape, but even she was somewhat surprised by the level of performance she and her teammates were able to produce in what were highly unusual surroundings. She recalls, I had no idea how fast we were going. I thought we were going well, but I had no idea about the actual time. When you cross the line, you look up at the scoreboard, and so it was really cool to see how fast we'd gone. It was just awesome to be back racing. The other girls laugh at me because I get such a race day buzz and I bounce about in the pits. It was a little bit strange having empty stands, but if that's the sacrifice we have to make to race, I'll take it. Evans, along with every other Olympic hopeful, is now having to restart her Olympic build-up having got most of the way through it before the postponement of the Games. That she is on track to make her Olympic debut at the age of 30 is somewhat unusual, but is a testament to the progress she has made since leaving behind her life as a full-time vet and joining the British Cycling Programme in 2017. She is now a mainstay in the consistently successful Team Pursuit squad, which will travel to Tokyo next summer 
with the ambition of defending the title GB1 in 2016. For Evans to have come so close to fulfilling her Olympic dream only for it to be ripped from her grasp may have been disappointing, but, she says, it only makes this next year all the more special. She continued, When I first got on the programme, I was really just seeing how I got on. First, the major aim was the Commonwealth Games, and then, after that, the Olympics were next, but they were two and a half years away and a lot can happen in that time. But then, all of a sudden, the Olympics weren't too far away and you realise how fast they come round. So now I feel a bit of deja vu, but this time, it's even more exciting because I've had a sense of what's to come and the build-up is pretty special. So I think going through it again, you may appreciate it a little bit more. Evan's plans for the coming months remain somewhat uncertain, and although she is hopeful of another competitive outing ahead of next summer's Olympics, there is a distinct possibility that her next race will be in Tokyo. That would be a daunting thought for some, but Evans is taking it all in her stride. She says, I'm quite chilled out. I know there's no point getting stressed about all the tiny details. I have flaps, everyone has them, but most of the time I know it's about ticking all the boxes and going through the process rather than constantly focusing on the Olympics. I am lucky in that I like training, so rather than get too caught up in it all, being about Tokyo and putting myself under a huge amount of pressure, I take it day by day and just get the efforts done. The hard sessions are tough, especially when it's cold and wet, but you just need to get through them. Martin Hannan says, The lunacy of the 2023 Rugby World Cup draw ensures tough test for Scotland. There are times when Scottish rugby fans must want to hide under a duvet and wait for the sun to start shining again, which is usually in June or July, and then only for a short time. Keep taking the vitamin D, boys and girls, because this last week has not even seen a glimmer of sunshine for Scotland and I'm not talking the weather here. The defeats of Edinburgh Rugby and Glasgow Warriors were bad enough. The latter match was particularly gruesome viewing. But then came the news that Duhan van der Merve and Adam Hastings will be plying their trade in England next season. I don't blame either player for maximising their income in careers which can be truncated in a moment. But it does show the parlous state of Scottish rugby's finances when the SRU simply cannot compete in pay terms with clubs down south. That news emerged after the 2023 World Cup draw. It did not take any sort of genius to work out that the 2023 World Cup 
was going to see Scotland in a pool in which they would have their work cut out to make it to the group stage. I warned before last year's World Cup that failure to make it to the quarter-finals would put Scotland in dire difficulties in the 2023 version of the tournament in France, simply because I was aware of one single fact, that the seedings for 2023 would be based on the world rankings on January 1, 2020. Scotland's failure to beat Ireland and Japan meant we ended 2019 ranked number 9 in the world, and that decided we would be seeded in band 3 for the draw that took place earlier this week, and which has seen us in a real group of death with Ireland and the world champions South Africa, with two more qualifiers to join us. Given that those qualifiers should be Samoa or Tonga, and Romania or Georgia, I am happy to say now what Scotland's aim should be. At least beat the minnows and qualify for the 2027 version as one of the top three in Pool B. Forget beating Ireland and South Africa, it's just not going to happen. And yet, and yet, how many people reading this would have predicted last year that several nations would not even play this year. How many of you would have guessed that Wales would go into reverse? Who really would have predicted that Argentina would beat New Zealand? And above all, who could have ever dreamed that should be nightmare of the coronavirus pandemic? The unfairness of the World Cup draw is manifest. Almost three years before the tournament takes place, the draw has been decided based on standings that were already way out of date. Take Wales, for example. On January 1, they stood at number 4 in the rankings, but their disastrous run of form means they are now ninth. Yet there they were in the draw in band 1. Scotland have risen to 7th, in the rankings and have overtaken Japan, who were still in band two. Largely as a result of that historic win over the All Blacks, Argentina are now one behind us in eighth, having overtaken Wales. England may have beaten France to win the Autumn Nations Cup, but that was the French second 15 practically, and does anyone doubt that Les Bleus are the current foreign team in the world. They are now ranked four, but were ranked seven in January. And so we face the prospect of the All Blacks taking on France in Pool A, when France, to my viewing, will show long before the time the tournament starts that they deserve band one status ahead of Wales. It is also unfair and terribly premature, and I am glad that World Rugby has agreed to review the timing of the draw for future World Cups. Might I suggest cutting the notice period to one year if, of course, we are back to any sort of normality? 
So, can Scotland make it to the quarterfinals in France in 2023? My immediate reaction is no chance. But look how much has changed since last year's World Cup. Yes, Ireland and South Africa will be strong favourites to beat Scotland on current form. And nobody could argue with that unless they have a Trumpian approach to reality. Gregor Townsend is in charge to the end of the World Cup at least, and that's a good move by the SRU, as it at least assures us of a consistent approach to developing the squad. If they both have a bad day, South Africa and Ireland can be beaten, but Scotland must play way beyond what they are achieving just now. There are some signs of development though, not enough at the moment. But the one advantage of the premature draw is that Townsend and co will have plenty time to conceive of a winning approach. Moravsik on facing the Celtic fans flack. Lubomir Moravsik is revered, positively deified in fact, by Celtic fans these days. The Parkhead faithful have taken many skillful entertainers to their hearts over the years, but very few are held in some sort of affection as Lubo. However, even the Slovakian playmaker witnessed the ugly side of the Glasgow club's supporters during the four seasons that he spent in Scotland. Their extreme reaction then to the dip in form the team has experienced this term has come as no surprise to him. He can still vividly recall the fallout to the infamous 3-1 defeat to second tier Inverness Caledonian Thistle in the Scottish Cup back in 2000, a result that led to John Barnes being sacked as manager the following day. The fans stayed outside the stadium because they were not happy with the result, said Moravsik via Zoom from his homeland. It was not a good situation. Nobody was happy that evening. There was a deflection off me at one of their goals, and it was hard for me. That was probably the toughest game of my career. It was a hard night for everyone. I'd never had that kind of experience before in my life, including everything that happened after the game. Yet Moravsik feels that such scenes, which were witnessed once again following the Betfred Cup defeat to Ross County, and the Premiership draw with St Johnson simply underline how deeply and passionately Celtic supporters feel about their beloved club. He said, The Celtic fans are possibly one of the best in football, but they can also be among the most emotional supporters after defeats or disappointments. For Celtic fans though, the team is very important, whether things are good or bad. They always show their emotions. They can be angry. They can be extremely happy or sad. I understand it all though, because I appreciate how proud the Celtic fans are of the team 
and how much they want the players to do well. For them, Celtic is very important in their lives. Maybe it's not quite as deep a feeling for fans of other clubs. Moravcic, who is now Vice President of the Slovakian Football Association, is convinced the absence of Celtic supporters from Parkhead due to the coronavirus pandemic has, despite their unhappiness at performances and results, been detrimental to Scott Brown and his teammates in recent weeks. He said, everyone knows how strong the Celtic fans are and how difficult it is for opposition teams to play at Celtic Park. Without fans, it is a little bit boring. I was very lucky because I never had this situation. The fans were a big motivation to me when I played for Celtic. If you play football, you play for the fans and the atmosphere. I played to make the fans in the stands happy. If you are playing without fans, it is a disadvantage, especially for Celtic players. Moravstik certainly recovered from that humiliation at the hands of Cali Thistle. He helped Celtic to win their first domestic treble since 1969 the following year after Martin O'Neill had taken over as manager. He has no doubts that his old club, who have won their last two matches against Lille and Kilmarnock, can get back to their best, complete the quadruple treble with a win over Hearts in the rescheduled William Hill Scottish Cup final on Sunday and enjoy a successful campaign. He, too, is confident that manager Neil Lennon whom he played alongside in the 2000-2001 season, will be unfazed by the off-field unrest and widespread calls for his sacking, and hopeful the Northern Irishman can survive in the high-profile position. He said, Lenny has been in Celtic before, and I am sure he will get the team back on a good road. Lenny was a natural leader in the dressing room, not because he was talking all the time. He wasn't a guy to make jokes in the dressing room. It was because he was a hard-working player who never wanted to get beaten. That's his character. I am not scared for him because I know he has a strong character. Every team needs a player like Lenny because he's got such a good mentality and a hard worker. Lenny was a very important guy to our team. He was really professional and a natural leader. It's always a problem at Celtic when you lose a few games and you are so many points off the top of the table. The European campaign was poor and it's not good news. But after the last two games, I hope Celtic are back and that the situation quietens down. It's difficult to judge when somebody is your friend I cross my fingers for him that the final will be a success and then he can go and win the next three games in the league. With the, win them all and it's good their preparation for the crucial game against Rangers. It's a short target and what comes after that nobody knows. First of all, they need to be successful on Sunday and continue this run. But the crucial moment is January 2. Celtic are not in Europe now 
and the target has to be win the league title. Moravchik has sensed a shift in the attitude among the Celtic supporters after the Lille and Kilmarnock games and anticipates that victories over Hearts and Rangers in the coming weeks will get them firmly back onside, entering the second half of what has been a turbulent season. He said, I think the fans are happy again because Celtic have won two games. Their reaction before is because they've been unhappy with the results and performances. It is football. A lot is about emotion. Now, after the recent victories, I hope the fans can forgive and forget. Celtic players share festive wishes with Glasgow's Royal Hospital for Children. Kind-hearted Celtic players brought Christmas cheer to sick children in Glasgow, while the club's charity wing made a generous donation to a good cause. Members of the Hoops first team squad took part in a series of video calls with kids at the Royal Hospital for Children after Covid restrictions put a stop to their usual in-person get-together. The East End team's generosity didn't stop there, with £10,000 handed over to Glasgow Children's Hospital Charity by the Celtic FC Foundation. Club captain Scott Brown said, We realise this can be a very difficult time for children and their families who are in hospital at this time of year, even more so given the difficulties which the pandemic has presented. While, of course, we would much rather see the kids in person, we had great fun speaking to them and hope that in some way our visit can lift their spirits ahead of Christmas. It is really humbling to see and meet these kids who face difficult times in their lives and some real challenges with such bravery. During these calls today, it also gave us a chance to thank the staff at the hospital for all they do. They make such a positive difference to the children and they deserve huge praise for their fantastic work throughout the year. The donation will fund Christmas gifts for children living with long-term health conditions and provide support for some parents and carers who may struggle to provide the basic items that they require during a hospital stay. It will also provide fun activities for those children who have to remain in hospital over the festive period. Chief Executive Peter Lowell said, We are very privileged to have had such a close relationship with Glasgow Children's Hospital over many years and over this period have donated hundreds of thousands of pounds to the magnificent work carried out. We know this can be a very difficult time of year for so many people using the hospital and we send all our best wishes to all the children and their families this Christmas. We know the staff work so hard to provide great care for so many children and we thank them too for all they do across the year in supporting children who are in need, 
particularly during this unique time we have all been living through. Our Christmas appeal again will ultimately have a huge impact across a wide spectrum of families and fantastic community groups and will make such a positive difference to the lives of thousands of people once again honouring the great charitable ambitions of the club's founders. Tony Hamilton, Chief Executive of Celtic FC Foundation added, It's an honour to once again support the Glasgow Children's Hospital charity through this donation. The donation has been made via our Christmas appeal, through which the club and fans across the globe have worked together to help those in need. COVID-19 forces the Glasgow Warriors Champions Cup cancellation. Glasgow face an anxious wait to learn if they will be punished by the organisers of the Champions Cup for being unable to fulfil their fixture against Lyon. The match, due to have been played at Scotstown this Saturday, was called off today after 20 members of the Warriors squad went into self-isolation as a Covid precaution. That was a response to the news received by Glasgow on Tuesday that several Exeter Chiefs players and staff had tested positive. All 20 Glasgow men who are self-isolating took part in the 42 to nothing defeat by the Chiefs at Sandy Park last Sunday. As of this afternoon, none had tested positive for COVID. While postponed Pro 14 games have been rescheduled this season, no provision has been made to do that in the Champions and Challenge Cups Tournament Organisers European Professional Club Rugby, EPCR, having decided there was no room in a crowded calendar. Instead, a ruling on how to record the glasgow Leon match and Exeter's game at Toulouse on Sunday, now also postponed, will be made by an EPCR committee. Although it is no fault of anyone at the Warriors that some Exeter employees tested positive, the fear at Scotston is that their team will be ruled to have been unable to fulfil a fixture. Such a ruling would result in the awarding of a 28 to nothing win to Leon, a result that would kill off Glasgow's already faint hopes of qualifying for the quarter-finals. With a number of players on the injury list to add to the 20 self-isolating, Head coach Danny Wilson simply would not have enough squad members left to take the field against Lyon. As no rugby below professional level has been played in Scotland since March, he would not even be able to call on semi-professional players from Super 6. The cancellation of the two matches was announced in a statement by EPCR in mid-afternoon yesterday, Wednesday. It read, EPCR has been informed that a number of Exeter Chief players and staff have tested positive for COVID-19 and that in accordance with public health guidelines, the club will not be able to send a matchday squad 
to fulfil its fixture against Toulouse at Stade Ernest Vallon on Sunday 20th of December. The Pool B match is therefore cancelled. As Exeter Chiefs played against Glasgow Warriors in round one of the tournament, Glasgow Warriors have advised EPCR that many of its senior players are now self-isolating in accordance with public health guidelines and consequently the club is not in a position to field a matchday squad of the appropriate standard for its Heineken Champions Cup Round 2 fixture against Leon at Skirston Stadium on Saturday 19th December. The Pool B match between Glasgow Warriors and Leon is therefore also cancelled. As per its COVID-19 protocol, EPCR will convene match result resolution committees to determine the results of the cancelled matches and the decisions of the committees will be communicated as soon as practicable. Glasgow issued their own statement shortly afterwards saying, a total of 20 Glasgow Warriors players from the match day 23 in Exeter last Sunday are now self-isolating after several Exeter Chiefs players and staff tested positive for COVID-19. With a significant number of players self-isolating and an extensive injury list, the decision has been taken that it is not safe to play on Saturday. Glasgow Warriors will now turn its attention to mitigating any further risks to its squad to protect the upcoming 1872 Cup fixtures against Edinburgh in the Guinness Pro 14. The club has reviewed the stringent COVID-19 protocols that it has put in place for its squad and commends its players and staff who have been exemplary in following these during this period. Celtic target Mark McKenzie open to Parkhead move. Celtic target Mark McKenzie says he remains open to a January switch to the Premiership champions after watching negotiations break down over the summer. The Philadelphia Union centre-half was linked with a move to Parkhead before they eventually opted to bring in Shane Duffy on loan from Brighton. According to Sky Sports, a new central defender remains top of Neil Lennon's wish list when the transfer window reopens and Mackenzie said he remains open to the possibility of a move to Glasgow's East End, pointing to the career path of Liverpool star Virgil van Dijk as evidence of a chance to progress in Scotland. Celtic would need to move quickly for the 21-year-old, with a host of Bundesliga and Premier League clubs reportedly monitoring his situation, with Mackenzie revealing that he had been doing his own research into Neil Lennon's side as he weighs up his next move. When asked if he would consider a move to Celtic next month, Mackenzie told Sky Sports, yeah, ultimately it's about the situation being right for all parties. As the player, you are probably the most important piece in the puzzle, but it's about making sure it's right for the club I'm at now, but also the club 
I could potentially be going to. I want to be playing regular and consistent minutes, at least fighting for my spot and then trying to keep that spot. That's the most important thing. It's something I've obviously talked about to my agents and talked to the club and staff and make sure it's right for everyone. I've done my fair share of research on Celtic and the Scottish Premiership and I've always loved football, so I've known about Celtic for a while. You hear about Celtic and the path of Virgil van Dijk going from there to the Premiership. I'm no dummy when it comes to understanding the leagues. I have a general idea of what the leagues look like and coming up with who is at the front of the pack in the league race and tournaments. I know about Celtic and the league and a lot of other leagues, but it's an exciting time. Hero Tommy Burns trusted me on my word over gambling call and I repaid him with Ibrook's goal, reveals Burn. Whenever Tommy Burns' name is mentioned, players and former stars from across the old firm Divide and beyond are quick and willing to tell stories of how close to him they were. Burns was beloved, one of the very, very few men in Scottish football without a bad word to his reputation. Everyone who knew him loved him, and those who did not know him wished they had. Whether it was his sense of humour in the changing room, or on the training pitch, or his kind nature away from football, Burns was a man held in the highest regard. For former Celtic winger Paul Byrne, though, Burns was even more special than that. The Irishman played for the club between 93 and 95, during which time Burns was in his dream job as manager of the Hoops, and both understood the Glasgow Goldfish Bowl when it was Celtic and Rangers all the time. Burns, who had battled gambling demons during his time as a pro, recalls the one moment in December 1994 that he truly understood the icon that was Tommy, and he'll never forget it. Someone rang the club and said that I had five grand on Rangers to beat us in the game, where I scored the equaliser at Ibrooks, Burton told Time Sport. Tommy pulled me off the bus and asked me if it was true. Under no circumstances was it true, and I told him to check the records and things like that. Tommy said, no, someone rang the club, and it is my job to ask, but I believe you. I went and scored. He and I used to joke after where I'd say, Tommy, if I had five grand on Rangers, I would have hit the corner flag. Maybe I was doing well, and someone wanted to bring me down a peg, or someone was jealous. Whatever it was, it's crazy in Glasgow. They must see you in the bookies having a bet, and they get something in their head, and all of a sudden, I've got five grand on Rangers. It was so stupid. It was a random call into the club, and they had to follow it up. That's the way it was. To be fair, when I first joined Celtic, 
The lads did warn me about all of this stuff. That's your life no matter where you are. You could go to have a water and black currant in the pub. It's people saying, I saw Paul burn in the club. They don't mention what you were drinking. Automatically people think you're out gargling, but you're in the limelight and have to put up with things like that. That Tommy Burns, who would have been 63 years old yesterday, had a complete and unwavering trust in his players, meant the world to burn, and it did, and still does, to the younger generation who worked with him, including the likes of Aidan Maggedy, Cy Ferry, and others. But it was also his honesty and desire to do the best with the club he loved that also left an indelible mark. Byrne also respected that side of his former manager. He said he knew Burns was right too at the time when he hinted that he could move on. Byrne faced competition from some decent players in his position and the formations and setups needed changing, he faced trying to oust even tougher players. That's why he refused to sit on the bench or in the stands and pick up a wage packet. Another personality trait he believes he shares with Burns, that he would do anything he could to help his favourite team win, even if it was to his own personal detriment. Burns went on, my time at Celtic with Tommy. I remember once he said to me, you can stay if you want, but that wasn't the encouragement that I needed. If he'd said he wanted me to stay, I would have grown six foot tall. He couldn't guarantee me first team football, but the type of person he was, he didn't want to be ruthless or hurt my feelings. He came across in a different way, but because I'm streetwise, I twigged it and I said, Fair enough. But I played in Europe for Celtic and all that. I played in some really big games, away at Sporting Lisbon and the likes, and I'm proud of that. But I think I'll always be remembered for scoring two goals against Rangers. It's taken 25 years for supporters to maybe give me a pat on the back for what I did all those years ago. Before signing initially, you hear about Celtic winning titles and trophies, competing in Europe, and I'm thinking, I'm going to be part of that. I want to be part of that. That wasn't the case for me. I felt like I was fighting a losing battle at the end of that season. I loved the club too much, and I didn't want to just sit on the bench collecting money. I also didn't want reserve team football at, 25, at 23 years old. I was playing in the first team, on half-decent money, playing for the biggest club in the world, with the best fans in the world, so I was riding on a cloud, and I was playing with the likes of Paul McStay, John Collins, Frank McAvenny and Peter Grant, and working with Tommy. Chris Bennett on his Olympic rise after COVID cancellation. Chris Bennett envisaged himself spending this summer competing at his second Olympic Games. Instead, he was spending 40 plus hours a week as a supermarket delivery driver.
But Scotland's top hammer thrower is nothing short of jubilant about the fact he is not only in the shape of his life physically, but also mentally, is in the best place he has been for years. At the start of 2020, Bennett had his sights firmly set on securing a spot in Team GB for Tokyo 2020, but illness in February derailed his plans. And so, as news filtered through that the Tokyo Games were to be postponed by a year as a result of the pandemic, Bennett was afforded space to breathe. The 30-year-old said, When we went into lockdown, I was sitting at 24 stone, with my fighting weight being about 19 stone. I was lifting well in the gym, so I hadn't thought about my weight. Then one day I jumped on the scales and it said it, I was 154 kilograms. And I was like, no way, these scales must be wrong. But they weren't. And that's when I thought, right, I need to sort myself out here. I sat down with my coach and talked about what I needed to do. It was hard during lockdown because I was working. I needed the money because my normal job of doing school visits stopped and I was still owed a lot of money, but I was really motivated. Between June and the start of October, I lost 22 kilos and I'm in the best shape I've been in for four or five years. That Bennett feels such an enthusiasm for his sport is quite a departure from how he felt just a couple of years ago. It was in 2018, in the aftermath of his second Commonwealth Games, he hit rock bottom. After heading to Australia with ambitions of winning a medal, he finished 10th. He remembers sitting at the airport, alone, waiting for his flight home, with some very dark thoughts running through his head. He recalled, I've been very close to chucking it, and 2018 in particular was very, very bad for me. I remember after the Commonwealth Games, having really stupid thoughts in my head, things like, did I even want to be around anymore? He was, admits Bennett, with hindsight, depressed. At the time, he would never have spoken out about his feelings, whereas now the Glaswegian is far more comfortable talking about his struggles. It was his fifth place finish at the British Championships in 2019 that made him realise he needed to change his mindset. He was, he admits, perfectly content with his fifth place, and that, he knew, was a problem. He said, Now I look back and think, what the hell was I playing at, being happy with finishing fifth? You have to have that burning desire, or else what's the point? I needed to get that respect back for myself. I was better than I was showing. It was the realisation that he was stuck in a rut Bennett needed and the change in attitude from then to now is stark. In September, Bennett finished second at the British Championships 
and although it was a last-minute decision to compete and he went in with no competition practice, he was sorely disappointed with a silver medal. He said, I've got that drive back. I don't have to drag myself out of bed to go to training anymore. The past few years, I've always had pretty long breaks after the end of the season, but after the British Championships, I was desperate to get back into it. I still struggle with my mental health, but now I have the coping mechanisms to deal with it. I've had to kick up the backside I needed. For a good few years, people have me asking me why I'm still doing this, and now I'm like, I'm doing it because I'm bloody good at it. I'd let things slip. That's my own fault, and I can't get those years back. But now I've stopped looking back, and I'm only looking to the future. The future for Bennett is focused on securing a seat on the plane to Tokyo next summer, and he admits that if he gets there, he will feel very differently to the emotions he felt on his Olympic debut in Rio four years ago. He said, if I get to Tokyo, it will feel like I deserve it. In Rio, I didn't feel like I deserved it. I'm busting myself to get in the team, and so whatever happens, I'll know I couldn't have done any more, and that's what it's all about. Scott Arfield vows that Rangers will not be derailed by St Myrne loss. Scott Arfield has vowed not to allow Rangers' midweek defeat to St Myrne derail their Premiership title push. St Myrne knocked Rangers out of the Betfred Cup with a 3-2 win in Paisley, stunning the league leaders and leaving fans of the light blue shocked at their side's inability to take advantage of a favourable run-in to their first silverware of note in years. Arfield accepts any criticism that comes their way, as he and his teammates know their defeat was a huge kick in the teeth, but he insists they will be ready to right any wrongs this weekend against Motherwell to keep their league title hopes alive and kicking. Said Arfield, We obviously know it was a disappointment for everyone at the football club. There is no hiding that. When you walk through these doors and wear the badge, you know the spotlight is on you. We have analysed everything and now prepared for a big game tomorrow. It is up to us to show a reaction and go after them on Saturday. I don't think one match will change the mentality in this group. We know what we need to do tomorrow and we are all looking forward to it. After the Livingston and Hibernian games, we showed a strong reaction. I think we will get the correct reaction tomorrow. We need to go on our run again and show what we are all about. Scottish football clubs handed £1.35 million boost from SFA and National Lottery Partnership. Scottish football clubs will be handed a cash boost from a £1.35 million support package 
from the National Lottery. The partnership between the Lottery and the SFA will ensure clubs in the Highland, Lowland, East, West and South of Scotland Scottish Football Leagues will receive funds to help them through the COVID-19 pandemic. It comes as the Scottish Government prepared to hand out a £30 million lifeline for clubs around the country who have been seriously battered by the lack of gate for match days and a serious loss of funding throughout the coronavirus period. Ian Maxwell, Scottish FA Chief Executive said, Fans are the lifeblood of our national game and local clubs the lifeblood of communities. The importance of protecting that bond has never been more important than during the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on everyday life across the country. The power of football is integral to our society and it will play an integral role in our emergence from the restrictions. That is why today's announcement is so significant in reinforcing football's status as our national game. The support package and partnership announced today will be welcomed by the clubs and on behalf of the game I would like to thank National Lottery players. Alistair Jack, Secretary of State for Scotland added, Football is hugely important to many people in Scotland bringing together local communities. The National Lottery has been helping communities across the UK for many years and Scottish football, like all sport, has suffered immensely due to the pandemic. The partnership with the National Lottery is excellent news and will play a vital role in helping our clubs until fans can safely return to football grounds. Nigel Railton, Chief Executive of National Lottery Operator at Camelot said, The National Lottery and its players make a massive difference to communities across the UK day in, day out, and have been doing so since 1994. So we are thrilled to be working with the Scottish FA to support these incredibly important clubs enabling them to continue playing such an important role in their local communities. I am a huge football fan and, thank, and think all Scottish fans will be delighted to know that their clubs are getting the support they need. And that was this week's Glasgow Times Sport podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.